Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Medical Update on Ovarian Cancer. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And I also uh, specifically want to also call out to um, the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition, um, Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, um, as well um, as being uh, as also being on this call today in terms of helping to promote the program. Um, amongst all of you um, on the call today. And we have on the program today um, over 486 participants, and you come from all over the United States, so there are a lot of you on the call. You can't see each other, I realize, but there are lots of you on the call. And you come from both um, urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants on today's call from Argentina, Canada, India, Nigeria, Portugal, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call, and we appreciate all of you being on the call today. Um, today's program is supported by AbbVie and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz, and Dr. Runowitz is Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Professor, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine, Florida International University. And Dr. Runowitz is going to really set the stage for the program today and present an overview of ovarian cancer, including staging and follow-up care, treatment options for recurrent or metastatic ovarian cancer, and clinical trial updates. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Runowitz. Hi. Thank you so much for inviting me uh, to speak in this uh, panel and the panel is comprised of uh, really fantastic um, physicians, um, genetic counselors, and the psychosocial support. Um, so I'm honored to be part of the panel. So I've been tasked with giving an overview of ovarian cancer. Ovarian cancer usually is detected in stages uh, three or four. And usually the first attempt is to do primary surgery. In the surgery, the goal is to determine the stage and debulk or cytoreduce. That is, remove the bulk of tumor, ideally to nothing visible, but certainly as small as possible. The surgery, and I don't say this um, because I'm a G1 oncologist, um, as a self-serving remark, but data has shown that the best surgery is performed by a gynecologic oncologist. A gynecologic oncologist can be easily located in your area. The Foundation for Women's Cancer Seek a Specialist, which is www.foundationforwomenscancers.org, well, you can put your zip code in, and you will be paired with um, several GYN oncologists. 
And it's important because your out, your surgical outcome will be better if performed by a gynecologic oncologist. Following surgery, um, you will be started on a chemotherapy. And I believe that Dr. Vonner Hendrickson will go on to talk about current standard of care in the first-line setting. After surgery and after chemotherapy, one is usually followed with CA125 and perhaps consolidation therapy. Another option for patients who might not be eligible for uh, surgery is neoadjuvant chemotherapy. That is, the chemotherapy is given first and the surgery is given um, after a few cycles, usually about three cycles then um, the chemotherapy is continued after. And the reason for this is that based on the experience of the GYN oncologist, the tumor will not be adequately debulked, so it would be just as effective and less morbid if the chemotherapy is given first. The treatment for recurrent disease, it's been pretty well shown now that secondary surgeries that is, surgeries that are attempting to reduce the volume of tumor have not been shown to impact outcome. There was a large study presented at a large cancer meeting last year which pretty much sealed the fate of second surgeries. So if you're having a recommendation for a second surgery, you might want to get a second opinion. In recurrent disease, the treatment is based on time from the last treatment. And it's arbitrarily, based on some research, divided into less than six months and greater than six months from the time that you completed treatment. If it's greater than six months time, then it's um, called platinum sensitive. If it's less than six months, it's called platinum resistant. If the disease recurs in less than six months, I recommend that my patients look at, and of course with our help, clinical trials. The, um, there hasn't been one defined regimen for platinum resistant, and because of that, I think trying the newer drugs and the clinical trials is a very good option, and I know that we're going to hear more about the clinical trials. Um, the if it's platinum sensitive, the options are, are actually quite a few. It can be a single agent, for example, weekly paclitaxel or uh, pegylated liposomal doxorubicin or topotecan. Or it can be chemotherapy with bevacizumab, especially in patients with less than two regimens and no bowel obstruction. But again, I think looking at clinical trials on cancer.gov is an option even for patients with platinum-sensitive tumors. For patients with known BRCA mutations, and we're going to learn more about uh, the BRCA mutation and the role of the genetic counselor and special staining, um, but for patients who know that they have a BRCA mutation, PARP inhibitors are currently recommended in those patients. But again, consider clinical trials, um, for example, uh, immunotherapy and other drugs and agents. The other option available is maintenance therapy. 
for to consolidate a response. So if the chemotherapy has produced a good response, there's no clinical evidence of disease, uh, one can go on um, several options. If it's a um, BRCA mutation or a BRCA mutation like cancer, then Olaparib has been approved by the FDA. Um, and bevacizumab as first line in combination with carbo and paclitaxel followed by maintenance bevacizumab um, has been very effective. So I want to emphasize again the clinical trials um, and the importance of clinical trials. We only know all of what I've just said because of the importance of clinical trials. Um, and just to give you a couple of examples of clinical trials that are out there, um, there's a clinical trial um, of a drug which um, helps platelets um, and paclitaxel, and it's aimed at restoring platelets, which can be a definite um, handicap and challenge um, in patients who have received more than one treatment. Uh, the other is the immunotherapy, a PD-L1 inhibitor uh, with a PARP inhibitor is available. And so these are drugs and combination of drugs that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to get unless you enroll on a clinical trial. So um, I strongly advocate for patients, especially when the disease has come back, that they look at clinical trials. So I think that concludes my remarks on this portion. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Runowitz. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful, again, way to set the stage for the program and really give the highlights um, for the treatment of, um, of ovarian cancer. So thank you. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Andrea um, Warner-Hendrickson who is um, a GYN oncologist at um, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Hendrickson is going to address how precision medicine and testing inform your treatment decisions, current standard of care and new treatment approaches, and managing side effects, symptoms, discomfort, pain, and quality of life. And actually, I'm sorry, Dr. Um, Warner, um, Dr. Andrea Warner-Hendrickson is medical oncologist, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, assistant professor of oncology and pharmacology, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. So it's my great uh, privilege to um, uh, turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Warner-Hendrickson. Thank you. It's um, really a privilege to be able to speak to you all today. And what I want to try to do in seven minutes or less is talk to you guys a little bit about the chemotherapy and treatment portion. Um, as Dr. Wanowicz, um really eloquently described, the importance of a gynecologi or gynecologic oncologist is really important for that initial surgery, whether it be up front or kind of after a couple rounds of chemotherapy. So. I really echo her, um, you know, um, her discussion regarding the importance of making sure that you do have a gynecologic oncologist on your team. Um, but when we come to think about the chemotherapy portion, um, there have been some exciting new changes in the treatment of ovarian cancer, and that's um, partly kind of this term precision medicine and testing that you may have heard about kind of online and on the radio. Um, that we are really beginning to start to kind of understand the biology of tumors a little bit better and are really trying to focus on um, modifying treatments based on certain genetic changes in your tumor. The one that is kind of most clear at this point 
are BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, and you'll learn more about that um, a little later in this talk. But we now have FDA-approved treatments that um, can change kind of our first-line treatment. So with that initial um, surgery and chemotherapy, we do now have an additional pill that can be used in patients um, after they finish their upfront chemotherapy and surgery, if they have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. And so that's kind of what precision medicine is talking about. It's really looking at variation in your genes or changes in the tumor and making treatment decisions based on that. So it really is the recommendation that all women with ovarian cancer undergo that BRCA mutation testing. And our genetics team will talk about that a little bit later um, in this talk. And so that's one that I, you know, would stress should be done at the time of your diagnosis or kind of when you're starting your treatment because treatment options really will be impacted based on those results um, because now there is a pill that can be taken when you're done with chemotherapy if you have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation which has uh, really shown to lengthen the time it takes for the disease to come back if the disease were to come back. And that really has kind of changed our standard of care. When we talk about standard of care for frontline ovarian cancer, like Dr. Runowitz had already mentioned, it's really a combination of chemotherapy and surgery unless the ovarian cancer is detected really early. But most women are gonna need chemotherapy and that surgery. The standard chemotherapy is still um, a combination of two drugs, a platinum drug and um, a, a taxane. Most commonly, we use intravenous carboplatin and paclitaxel. Um, we usually give about six treatments of that or six cycles. Um, and then the standard in the past has really been then to just go to observation. Um, there have been newer changes where there is the option of what we call maintenance therapy. One of them is a um, kind of a, a drug that targets blood vessel growth called Avastin. That can be used now up front, um, or like we had mentioned, if you have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, really thinking about using um, a PARP inhibitor, a Laparib, um, as kind of a maintenance therapy. And what maintenance therapy means is kind of you've, you've completed your initial chemotherapy, you have a repeat CT scan, most of the time it shows that there's really no disease, but that maintenance therapy is used in hopes to kind of um, prevent or prolong the time it takes for the cancer to grow back. And so that can be used for, you know, sometimes it's, uh, the maintenance therapy can go on for two years or so. In terms of new treatment approaches, I would really stress again what Dr. Ronowitz had mentioned is, is clinical trials. You know, the only way that we can improve our treatments is really to try new approaches and, and do this through clinical trials. Um, all of the drugs that are currently FDA approved were all in clinical trials at one point. So it's really important to talk to your oncologist about clinical trial options. And then going back, kind of looping back to that precision medicine, there are a lot of clinical trials now that are based on certain tumor changes. And so what I would recommend talking to your oncologist about is doing some form of tumor testing, um, which is a process where the DNA and the RNA and the kind of the protein of your tumor is assessed for certain changes. And oftentimes 
not always, but sometimes we can find drugs that match that certain mutation on clinical trials in hopes that, again, you're having kind of a targeted therapy approach. And so that's something I would really recommend you talk to your oncologists about. One of the important things that we can't forget in terms of the treatment of ovarian cancer is, of course, the side effect profile. All of the chemotherapy drugs and targeted um, therapies do come with side effects, and sometimes they can really impact our quality of life. What I think is really important to also talk to your oncologist about is to really see if you would have access to a palliative care team. Palliative care is really a kind of um, a group of, of, um, of professionals, whether they be nurses, um, psychologists, um, counselors, social workers that really um, help enhance quality of life and help alleviate some of those distressing symptoms, whether they be from the cancer itself or whether it be from the treatment. So anyone who has, you know, a chronic illness likely is going to benefit from palliative care. And so we um, here at Mayo really encourage, you know, even at time of diagnosis, we get our palliative care team involved just to ensure that um, our women really have best quality of life as possible. There are certain tricks um, that we can do in terms of helping with appetite or nausea or fatigue. Um, and also other things, you know, dealing with loss of income or, or um, issues with work. Um, and so social services can be involved. And all of those things play into kind of that cancer treatment and understanding that there should really be a team of people to help you um, kind of through that. So uh, managing side effects is important and getting a palliative care um, team involved sometimes really helps um, get you through some of those, those side effects. And so I know I'm running out of time and I'd be happy to, you know, take questions on any of the things that I've discussed uh, towards the end. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Warner-Henderson. That was really wonderful and actually um, very informative. And I know there'll be questions for you also during the Q&A. So thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr. Uh, Dr. Kerr is consultant, Division of Anatomic Pathology and Laboratory Genetics and Genomics, Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Assistant Professor, Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Director, Molecular Anatomic Pathology Laboratory, and Co-Director, Genomics Laboratory, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Kerr is going to address the role of the pathologist importance of diagnostic testing in metastatic ovarian cancer, and understanding the landscape for testing in metastatic ovarian cancer. It's really my great uh, pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Hello. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. What a pleasure to talk to all of you today. My job for the next seven minutes is to explain what a pathologist does in the care of ovarian cancer. Let me talk first about what a pathologist does in general. Many of you may be more familiar with the pathologists that you see on TV that are involved in forensic pathology or autopsy pathology, specifically in the setting of criminal investigations. Autopsy is an important part of a pathologist's training, but few of us actually practice medicine in the setting that you see on the popular crime shows. On the contrary, most pathologists go to medical school just like your other doctors but then choose to receive specialized residency and subspecialty training in clinical laboratory testing. This is not research, but clinical testing that occurs in the laboratory associated with your doctor's office or hospital. 
this specialized training in pathology lasts a minimum of three years and can run as long as seven or more years. After this training, a pathologist typically oversees a variety of tests done in the clinical laboratory. This can be anything from routine blood tests to examining small tissue biopsies and fluids to sectioning and examining the large amounts of tissue that are typically removed during an operation for ovarian cancer. This is why your pathologist is so important to your care. Studies have actually found that up to 80% of clinical decisions are based on laboratory test results, including pathology reports. So let's now talk specifically about what a pathologist does in the care of ovarian cancer. First, I will address what goes into the preparation of the pathology report. Ovarian cancer patients may initially have a small biopsy of tissue or have fluid removed from the abdomen to be examined by a pathologist to confirm a diagnosis of cancer and to ensure that the disease suspected is likely to be arising in the ovary rather than in another organ, such as the intestines, which can sometimes mimic ovarian cancer. Alternatively, an ovarian mass might be removed in its entirety for this diagnosis with or without other tissues to determine the extent of spread of the cancer. A full staging procedure or tumor debulking is often done to remove as much of the cancer tissue as possible as Dr. Runowitz described. Fluid or tissue specimens are then examined by a pathologist using a naked eye examination or what is called a gross examination to measure the size, weight, color, and other characteristics of the tissue. Some of the tissue is also examined under a microscope to more precisely classify the tumor. Final classification may depend also upon special studies. Additional tests might include special stains of the tissue that are interpreted under a microscope by the pathologist. Sometimes genetic testing of the tumor tissue is also done in a molecular laboratory and this can both be done for a diagnostic classification of the tumor and to help with matching the patient with a therapy. After this thorough examination of the tissue, a report is completed by the pathologist to include the gross examination, results of tests, microscopic description, and a final diagnosis as well as staging information and comments that may be helpful to explain any unusual features of the case. Reports often include a standard checklist that summarizes your tumor and the extent of spread in a standardized format called a synoptic report. I recommend getting a copy of your pathology report to read yourself, as it is a part of your medical record. The pathology report might seem like it is written in a foreign language at first due to the specialized terms that we use, and so I think it can be helpful to go over your pathology report with your cancer care providers to make sure that you understand the report and how it affects your care. In some cases where the diagnosis is unusual or complex, you may even want to talk to the pathologist about your report directly. I always recommend talking first to the doctors who know you personally, but they can help you get in touch with a pathologist if needed. I do occasionally talk to patients about their reports. There are also some really great online resources for patients to help understand pathology reports. 
I recommend a resource from the College of American Pathologists called Your Pathologist. You can check out that website at yourpathologist.org, and Dr. Mesner can also share that information with you after the conference. And then finally, I'll just briefly talk about the different types of ovarian cancer. A wide variety of tumors can grow in the ovaries, and so figuring out the type of tumor is very important to determining the predicted behavior of the cancer and the treatment that is expected to work for a particular type of cancer. The amount of time I have today is too brief for a description of each type of cancer, but the most common type of cancer in patients listening to this conference is called high-grade serous carcinoma, and many of the treatments have, that have been described by the previous speakers are really talking about the treatment of high-grade serous carcinoma. High-grade serous carcinoma, in most cases, is often thought to start as a tiny tumor in the fallopian tube, but it spreads early to the ovaries to grow into larger tumors or may spread to other surfaces in the pelvis or abdomen. High-grade serous carcinoma can occur in hereditary breast and ovarian cancer families associated with heritable BRCA mutations, but can also occur in non-familial forms in which BRCA and other types of mutations occur just in the tumor but not other cells in the patient's body. You will hear more about BRCA testing from the other speakers after me. Other types of ovarian cancer are very different from high-grade serous carcinoma and include low-grade serous carcinoma, borderline tumors, mucinous carcinoma, endometrioid carcinoma, and clear cell carcinoma, to name a few. Rarer ovarian tumors also include sex cord stromal tumors and germ cell tumors. Additionally, other cancers, such as colon cancer or stomach cancer, can spread to the ovaries and look like ovarian cancer until a pathologist looks at the tissue and realizes that the cancer is coming from somewhere else. So making the correct diagnosis is important because this pathology diagnosis is the basis for the personalized treatment recommendations made by your cancer care team. Your cancer doctors often interact with pathologists at multidisciplinary tumor boards to discuss your diagnosis and situation. And then the oncologists, surgeons, radiologists, and pathologists review your case together and put together a consensus recommendation for your care. With that, I hope I've given you a good explanation of the role of a pathologist and diagnostic testing in your cancer care. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. That was very comprehensive and I think really gives people a greater sense of the role of a pathologist, all that you're doing, and that they have the option to talk with, an, with a pathologist, which is really important as well. So thank you. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Very, very interesting. Thank you. And our next speaker um, is Miss um, Sarah Ewing. Miss uh, Ewing is a... Um, Certified um, Genetic Counselor, Certified Genetic Counselor, Department of Clinical Genomics, Mayo Clinic. And Ms. Ewing is going to present Genetics 101, or Understanding Germline or Heritable BRCA1 and 2, and Somatic or Acquired Mutations, the Role of the Genetic Counselor, and How Germline Testing is Done. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ewing. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner. It's uh, very much an honor to be speaking to this group today. 
Um, before being referred to genetics, I think that many patients and families are somewhat unfamiliar with genetic counseling and what genetic testing might entail, so hopefully I will help to shed some light on this topic for you all this afternoon. Genetic counseling is a process to evaluate and understand a family's risk of an inherited medical condition. Genetic counselors such as myself have specialized training in medical genetics and counseling and can work in a variety of different areas of medicine, including cancer. The majority of ovarian cancers actually do not have an inherited genetic cause. We believe that most ovarian cancers are considered sporadic, meaning that they occurred by random chance. However, up to about 20% of ovarian cancers are estimated to have a genetic cause, meaning an inherited gene mutation contributed to the patient's diagnosis. And an inherited gene mutation is typically passed down through the generations in a family, causing an increased risk for certain types of cancer. I think it's important to clarify the difference between an inherited gene mutation and a somatic or acquired mutation, which some of my colleagues have mentioned today during this talk. So a somatic mutation is a genetic change that occurred within the tumor itself and is usually not inherited. An oncologist might order genetic tumor testing for a patient to help inform their management and care, and this is often referred to as somatic or tumor genetic testing, whereas a genetic counselor typically would focus on germline genetic testing, which is assessing for inherited gene mutations or a mutation that an individual is born with and can be passed down through families. So it is important to identify individuals who have an inherited cause or hereditary cause for their cancer because this can have a significant impact on the care not only of the patient but for their families as well. The two most common causes of hereditary ovarian cancer are the BRCA1 and 2 genes, which are often referred to as the BRCA genes. The BRCA genes help control cell growth and DNA repair within our bodies, and these functions actually work to prevent cancer from developing. So when a person inherits a mutation within BRCA1 or 2 from either their mother or their father, it means that they were essentially born with a spelling mistake within this gene. And that mutation prevents the gene from working properly and means that this individual has an increased chance to develop certain types of cancer. Women with a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation have a significant risk for both ovarian and breast cancer. Men have an elevated risk for male breast cancer as well as prostate cancer. So in families with a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation, we will typically see multiple relatives diagnosed with these cancers through the generations in a family, especially at younger ages than average for their diagnoses. There are other genes in addition to BRCA1 and 2 that are also known to cause a hereditary risk for ovarian cancer, and I will just briefly touch on a few examples. That includes the Lynch syndrome genes. Lynch syndrome is a genetic susceptibility to cancer associated with a high risk for colon and uterine cancer, as well as ovarian and other GI malignancies. Families with Lynch syndrome will often have, again, multiple relatives diagnosed with these cancers at younger ages. And then a few other examples of genes associated with hereditary ovarian cancer include the BRIP1 gene, RAD51C, and RAD51D. 
We also assume that there are likely ovarian cancer risk genes that have yet to be discovered, so it's possible that some families may have a mutation in a gene that's still unknown. Typically, after meeting with a genetic counselor or another provider, this appointment will entail reviewing your family history, your personal history, the pros and cons of genetic testing, and after that appointment or during the visit, an individual may decide to move forward with genetic testing, which is typically performed by a blood draw. A specialized genetics laboratory would then analyze the genes associated with hereditary ovarian cancer to determine if a mutation is present. If a mutation is found in BRCA1 or 2 or another gene, this means that the individual's cancer does have a genetic cause. As other speakers have mentioned, this can sometimes influence ovarian cancer treatment with specific, more targeted chemotherapies. Identifying a gene mutation may also indicate that that individual has an increased chance to develop other types of cancers. So, for example, if we remember back to the BRCA genes, those are also associated with an increased chance for breast cancer. So this information is used to guide future management and screening for patients and their families, such as consideration of earlier and more frequent screening and consideration of preventative options. The last thing I'll just touch on is that if a gene mutation is identified, genetic testing can be very helpful for other relatives to understand their risk and also to make sure that they are being screened appropriately. So first-degree relatives of an individual with a BRCA or other gene mutation have a 50% chance of also carrying that mutation. That applies to both men and women. It's important to know that having a gene mutation in a cancer risk gene causes a higher likelihood to develop certain cancers, but does not mean that a person will definitely develop one of those cancers over their lifetime. And as alluded to by some of my other colleagues on the call, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network does recommend that an individual with ovarian cancer meet with a genetic counselor to consider genetic testing. A genetic counselor can help a patient decide whether genetic testing is right for them and answer any questions they might have related to genetic testing. They can help coordinate the genetic testing for a patient, interpret those results, and make recommendations for their family members. Um, I'll include a website link that can help individuals find a genetic counselor near them. That website is nsgc.org slash counselor. And that's all I have this afternoon. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Dwing. That was really wonderful and very informative, and I, I think that um, just the role of genetic counselors is so important um, for um, f for women living with ovarian cancer and for many cancers, and so it's very important that you're on the call today, so thank you. And I think we've talked about having you on the call for many other types of cancers because it's really so important. It's a very important area. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Kristen Zorn. Dr. Zorn is Associate Professor, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Division of Genetics, Director, Division of Gynecologic Oncology, Director, Hereditary Gynecologic Cancer Clinic, Acting Director, Adult Cancer Genetics, Associate Director for Clinical Research, Winthrop P. Rockefeller Cancer Institute, University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. And Dr. Zorn is going to address further information about somatic testing, treatment decisions based on somatic and germline mutations, and key questions to ask your oncologist about the genetics of your ovarian cancer. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Zorn. 
Good afternoon. It's a real pleasure for me to be able to talk to so many people at once about an area that I feel so passionate about. Um, I am a gynecologic oncologist, like several of the people who've already spoken on the call, but um, Ms. Ewing and I are sharing more and more of our patient population because I realized early in my career how important cancer genetics was becoming for gynecologic oncology. And so I did some extra training and have been trying to help uh, my field understand the increasing importance of genetic testing. So I completely uh, support the idea of working with uh, genetic counselors and your oncology professionals to try to understand how um, genetic mutations can play a role in managing ovarian cancer. There's two really important concepts here that are interrelated and they're both evolving very quickly. Um, so I want to try to help clarify that for folks. What Ms. Ewing was just speaking about was primarily germline mutations, the kind that can be inherited um, and in the ovarian cancer world, we're uh, pretty much looking at autosomal dominant inheritance, which means that a parent of either sex, your mother or your father, could have passed a mutation on that increased your risk for ovarian cancer. And you, in turn, if you have that mutation, could pass it on to a child, a son or a daughter of either sex. And so that's a really important component. It used to be that early on we emphasized the importance for those family members so that they could be proactive about preventing cancer or diagnosing it as early as possible. But now treatment is so much impacted by knowledge of the mutational landscape that germline mutations are very important there. The biggest role that they're playing right now is around PARP inhibitors. This is a completely new class of drugs that's been approved in the past few years. For the first time in history, a new class of drugs was approved in ovarian cancer before it was approved in any other cancer. We now have uh, four PARP inhibitors that have been approved for either ovarian cancer and now breast cancer also has an approval with the potential for other PARP inhibitors to be approved in the future based on further clinical trial results. And the eligibility for having a PARP inhibitor be used in your care has also been evolving rapidly. At first, it required that you have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation um, in the germline, but now there's the potential to use it in other settings in ovarian cancer as well. I don't want to belabor all of those specifics on this call, but suffice it to say it's likely an important conversation that you're having with your oncologist um, in the treatment of your ovarian cancer. Now, somatic mutations are the second concept that I want to make sure that people are um, getting an introduction to, which is changes within the tumor itself. These are not changes that were inherited from your parents. And those are also playing an increasing role in treatment because we have uh, precision therapies, is often the term that's used to describe this, that are targeting those specific changes in the tumor. And the idea is that maybe we can focus on changes that are within the tumor and try to spare some of our healthy cells um, the side effects that they often see with traditional chemotherapies that just affect rapidly pro um, proliferating or dividing cells. So the complication here is that germline and somatic testing are different processes. Germline testing is typically done by collecting a blood sample, as was mentioned before. It can also be done off, off of a saliva sample in many um, circumstances. Um, tumor testing is literally looking at the tumor itself, so it requires slides from the pathologist going to one of the companies that does this testing. In general, this testing is done by two different kind of companies. 
Um, and again, that's a somewhat complicated area that's evolving relatively rapidly, but sometimes people feel like they've had germline genetic testing, for example, when really they've only had um, somatic tumor testing. And those two things are sometimes able to uh, lead to treatment recommendations, but sometimes they're telling us completely different things that have different implications for treatment and also for family members. So I think it's really important for people to be um, clear when they're getting test results back from their treatment team, whether this is germline, whether this is somatic, and what are the implications that come from it. Uh, as was mentioned earlier about PATH reports, these are critically important documents. I recommend that you uh, keep a copy of them with your most important medical records. Uh, because it's easy with electronic medical records today for these kind of results to get buried in a very extensive lab section and be hard to find somewhere down the road. The reason why that is important is that genetic testing is evolving more rapidly than almost any other area of cancer care right now. So women, for example, who may have had genetic testing for BRCA1 and BRCA2 in the past are now coming back in for counseling about whether they need extended testing for other genes that may be part of the hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. Um, and so we have to refer back to that testing that they've had before in order to counsel them about the best way forward. So these are really important um, test results um, that, again, have implications not just for the patient and her treatment, but potentially her family members uh, um, as well. So whenever you're getting this kind of test result back, I would just make sure in your mind that you're crystal clear whether this is something that's inherited and could therefore potentially be passed on. And if so, what's the process for helping your family members get that information and undergo testing themselves? Or is this something that's specifically about you and might impact your treatment choices? Um, as was mentioned earlier, a lot of clinical trials are being offered, especially in the recurrent ovarian cancer space, and many of them are uh, requiring this somatic tumor testing from the get-go so that it helps to determine um, which therapies might be the best match for that patient's tumor. Um, I think that's very likely at some point in the future that we're going to get to a world where we may be serially profiling um, patients' cancers um, at each progression to try to help determine uh, what's going to be the ideal therapy for them. We're not quite there yet, but that's what a lot of us are hoping is that we get to a point that we're so smart with our therapies that um, we're able to maximize benefit from treatment while minimizing um, toxicity. So I'm going to stop there and uh, let Dr. Messner take back over. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Soren. That was really outstanding and really very important for everyone to realize the importance of of this, the testing and genetic testing and working with genetic counselors. And so I know there will be questions for Dr. Soren as well. I'm going to say a few words about the psychosocial services that you can access, and then we're going to go right into questions. So start to think about your questions now. Um, so um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide emotional and social and practical counseling to people living with cancer. Um, living with ovarian cancer is, of course, a, a part of that whole all the different cancers that we help people with. Um, we offer the practical help, financial assistance. Um, we also offer um, a chance to get counseling or to talk to one of our oncology social workers. We have about 25 oncology social workers on staff, all of whom have master's level training in, in, oncology, in social work. And, um, and they are available to talk with you about any of your concerns, worries, um, any other issues that you may be 
dealing with. We also offer support groups, both on the telephone and online. And we currently have over 138 online support groups. We have support groups for people with ovarian cancer. We have support groups for caregivers. Um, so we have, we, and we have support groups for almost every type of cancer and all different ages. Um, we also have a Cancer Care for Kids program, so helping children who are really impacted by cancer in their families so that a, a, a child or teen who has a parent, let's say, with ovarian cancer, um, and so helping both the parent and the children to cope with that and to talk to each other. Um, and to some extent, um, we also um, have programs for people of different ages, young adults, older adults, um, you know, people all along the life cycle have different issues. So to contact Cancer Care, you can simply call us at um, 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And with that now being said, we now have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get to your questions, I will let you know how you can get your questions answered. Okay, uh, Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Jacqueline W. Your line is open. Uh, thank you very much for this wonderful talk. Uh, I'd like to ask any of the uh, contributors, is there any evidence at this time that ovarian cancer originates from an unresorbed ectopic pregnancy? Thank you. Well, thank you for that question, Jacqueline. Um, Dr. Brunowitz, do you want to address that question? Yeah, there, there's no data to support that. The, there is data to support origin in the fallopian tube, which is a site of where you can have an ectopic, but it is not from an ectopic pregnancy. Okay, excellent. Okay, um, and we have a question in front of our online participants, um, and this question I'm going to ask, um, I'm going to ask both Dr. Um, Zorn and Dr. Ewing to address this. I'm Braca. One positive, stage four, going on ten years, eight eight occurrences. If I already have taken Limparza for about a year and a half, I've been on two different chemos since. Can I take another PARP inhibitor when it comes back? Actually, Doctor, probably Doctor Zorn, if you would want to address that. Sure, that's a great question, and uh, congratulations on uh, such a long uh, survivorship, that actually is something that we often see in uh, patients who carry BRCA mutations. A lot of times their tumors tend to be sensitive to chemotherapy and continue to respond for long periods of time, which has been helpful, obviously. Um, you're part of a group of people who now have already seen treatment with uh, Limparza, which is also known as Aloparib. And the question becomes, with a further progression of the cancer, is it reasonable to try a different PARP inhibitor? Um, and the answer is we, we don't know really well. Um, that's an area where we're going to have active clinical trials going forward. Um, uh, right now, most of the PARP inhibitors that have been approved are hard to combine with chemotherapy because of the side effects on the bone marrow with low blood counts. 
And so usually you're taking the PARP inhibitor by itself. Uh, that might change in the future with some of the other PARP inhibitors that are in trials. But for now, um, it's not unreasonable, certainly, to give another PARP inhibitor a try um, and see. But we just don't have great data to guide that decision quite yet. Thank you. Um, and we have another telephone question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Yes, thank you so much for this excellent seminar, Caroline Messner. Thank you very much. Um, my question is that I had breast cancer 12 years ago, but my genetic testing, I um, no, not BRCA1 or 2, it came out on a BART test, I believe it's called, a nonspecific ATM gene. I'd like to know what uh, occurrences that can happen with for ovarian cancer with this particular gene. I had the a CA125 that really do, the doctors say really didn't show anything. It was more, I'm more concerned about this particular gene and what the future could be with this. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for that question. Um, Ms. Ewing, do you want to start by addressing Sure, that? yep, I can take that one. Thank you very much for your question. So I think, ma'am, what the report might be indicating is that you could have what we call a variant of uncertain significance in the ATM gene. So whenever we do genetic testing on a germline basis where we're looking for inherited changes in a gene, there's always three different types of results we can get back through that testing. One is a positive where we find a change in the gene that we know is definitely a harmful gene mutation that is associated with increased cancer risk. Um, the second type of result would be entirely negative or normal. And then the third type of result is what we call a variant of uncertain significance. It's actually a quite common finding on genetic testing. We get those back in approximately 30% of the tests that we run. And what that change means is that there is a small difference in the DNA code for your particular gene, which in your case it sounds like is the ATM gene, but the laboratory and the scientific community does not have enough data to know whether that specific gene change is a harmful gene mutation or just a normal benign change in your DNA that makes you unique as a human being. And we know that most uncertain changes are eventually downgraded to benign changes. So if that is what was identified for you, ma'am, then we actually don't recommend changing your management, testing other relatives, or changing the management of other relatives based on an uncertain finding because the majority of them are downgraded to normal findings. But I can't say for sure that that's what was identified for you in that ATM gene. Oh, thank you very much, Ms. Ewing. That was excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, we have a question for Dr. Kerr um, from one of our online participants. Can archived pathological slides be used to characterize tissue for precision medical treatment, or is biopsy tissue or a current tumor needed? That's a really good question. So typically laboratories will keep um, what are called paraffin-embedded blocks of your tumor tissue for up to 10 years or more um, at some academic institutions, they're actually kept indefinitely. Um, usually, for most testing, those blocks are perfectly good for using for precision medicine. Um, the, the controversy comes up when there's treatment in between when you had those 
older blocks of tissue preserved versus um, your current tumor that's seen some treatment. And so uh, I think Dr. Zorn touched on this a little bit. Um, it's becoming more popular for testing to be done on the most current specimen after treatment, just in case there's a difference in the tumor genetics or in the proteins um, after you've had your treatment. So it's important to talk to your oncologist about which specimens um, should be should you know should we use the older specimen or should we get a new biopsy at this point? Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and we have another telephone question, um, Crystal. Thank you. And our next question comes from Carol P. Your line is open. Uh, our question has been answered. Thank you. Oh, okay. Thank you. Okay, um, now for the question. Um, so, um, so this is a question um, for uh, Dr. Uh, Zorn and Ms. Ewing. For geneticists, can one have a combination of germline or somatic mutations? Um, I'll take that. This is uh, Kristen Zorn. Um, it is possible, and actually it's it's very likely um, with ovarian cancer that somatic mutations will be found. Almost every ovarian cancer is going to have some changes in it when um, you have somatic tumor testing. Um, what really becomes important from that is whether um, those changes are ones that um, help to determine that a particular drug might be important for treatment for that cancer. So not every change has a precision therapy that's associated with it, at least not yet. Um, germline tumor uh, mutations, as Ms. Ewing um, alluded to, are uh, roughly about 20% of ovarian cancer carries a germline mutation. So you may have both, um, or you may have um, just somatic mutations. It's much less likely that you would have a germline mutation, but no somatic mutations associated um, in other genes. Okay, excellent. Um, and a question um, again for um, Dr. Kerr. I was diagnosed with stage 3C high-grade serous carcinoma at age 34 which I've been told is very young, uh, that I've been told is very young for this. Is it worth asking for a second opinion to make sure I've been diagnosed correctly or are pathology reports generally accurate? Yeah, another really great question. Um, so uh, there, there are young women that get high-grade serous carcinoma, so that's certainly possible. But if ever in doubt about your diagnosis, there are certainly cases where pathologists can disagree about the diagnosis. And sometimes that review, if you get a medical second opinion somewhere, will happen automatically. So if you're at one center and you get a second opinion at another center, your oncologist or surgeon will often request those slides to be overread by another pathologist at their center. Um, but you can also ask for a second opinion just on the pathology um, if you're ever in doubt. And I actually think that's, that's a great idea if, if there's ever any doubt about the diagnosis. Um, a big part of my practice as a pathologist at an academic center is actually doing just that. So pathologists will send me cases or patients will request that their pathology slides be sent to an expert for another read. Um, and you know, it can just provide reassurance that you, you have the right diagnosis, which is really the, the basis of your treatment. So it's definitely an option for most patients. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Um, Warner Hendrickson. Um, 
So what what kind of questions um, sh- should I ask? Is what someone's asking here? What are the questions they should be asking their healthcare team um, about about really managing the treatment side effects? Actually, that's a great question, and I think what um, sometimes women get a little bit nervous about is kind of relaying the side effects um, and kind of the, some of the complications of the treatment. Um, because oftentimes we're so used to kind of saying, oh, it's not that bad and I can get through it and I don't want to complain or those types of things. But, you know, in order for your team to really be able to treat you appropriately and really understand, do you know, does dosing need to be modified? Are there changes that are happening that could become permanent and that could really impact quality of life? The, no- the number one thing is really to just, you know, when you return for your chemotherapy appointments or if it's during, you know, um, like in between appointments to call in if you're having you know side effects that are that are disturbing to you that are concerning um, you know the most important thing is communication and once the, that communication is open and you mention to your physician you know you know appetite issues or nausea issues or or neuropathy or anything like that that really opens the discussion as to how do we treat it does this mean we need to change the treatment or how can we tweak the treatment a little bit to make it more um, palatable. I think that sometimes patients are a little concerned that, oh, if I say something, maybe I, you know, I won't get full treatment or, you know, something along those lines, and that's not true. It's just really important that your team really understands what side effects you're going through um, because without that, it's really hard for the oncologist to make those changes and to suggest things because if you're not speaking up about those side effects, the assumption often is you're not having them. And I hope that helps a little bit. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks. Um, and a question for Dr. Zorn. I've heard about cancer being a met- metabolic illness. How does this relate to genetic mutations? Um, I would say that... Uh, I'm not 100% sure what they're getting at. There are cancers that we feel like are very much associated with inflammation and obesity and other entwined chronic conditions like that, Um, and that may play a role in some ovarian cancers. Probably the best evidence we have for that is uh, women who have not just run-of-the-mill endometriosis, but what's called atypical endometriosis, which um, is a much more severe um, and actually precancerous form of changes, um, and that can ultimately lead to either endometrioid or clear cell ovarian cancer. And so that is part of that chronic inflammation spectrum, increasing risk for ovarian cancer. So um, as of yet, um, we don't have specific prevention and screening options around that, but I do think those discoveries have been really important to help us understand that the genetic pathway to cancer is different for the different histologic subtypes of ovarian cancer, and our sincere hope is that ultimately that's going to help us understand better how to prevent or potentially treat these cancers based on that specific biology. Awesome. Thank you. And um a question for um, uh, Dr. Runowitz. Does using birth control pills cause ovarian cancer? So it's actually the opposite. Birth control pills have been shown to decrease the incidence of ovarian cancer. So that's one of the means we have of preventing ovarian cancer, along with some surgery options, 
Uh, so, for example, you can take out the fallopian tube. Um, it's not been proven, but the data suggests um, that that will reduce your risk. And that data comes from women who have had tubal ligations. They have a lower incidence of ovarian cancer. And women who have had hysterectomies but still have their fallopian tubes and ovaries also have a lower incidence. So the birth control pill is actually protective. Excellent. Thank you. And another question, um, and this one is for um, Dr. Um, Werner Hendrickson. Um, does my response to chemotherapy depend on the type of ovarian cancer I have? That is another great question. And like Dr. Kerr had kind of talked about, there are different types of ovarian cancer, and there are different types of kind of that general epithelial ovarian cancer. And we do sometimes see, um, you know, responses dependent a little bit on the pathology or what the tumor looks like under the microscope. And sometimes depending on what that pathology is, when the cancer comes back, we recommend, you know, one chemotherapy over another because of what it looks like under the microscope. And so that's something that I would recommend you talk to your oncologist about as to kind of what, what is this, what subtype of ovarian cancer do I have and what does this mean in terms of chemotherapy options? Well, I just want to thank our speakers. You have been phenomenal. Um, this has been an amazing call, I must say. And we have really the multidisciplinary team right in front of all of you here on this call. Um, every discipline that we need um, to address um, ovarian cancer. Um, we also want to thank all of you as participants. You asked really such really great questions and um, really excellent questions that really enhance the call. Now, um, of course, the call could go on quite a bit longer because there are many more questions in queue, but we would say that this call is going to last an hour, so we do have to um, wind it up. But I did say that, first of all, I would give you um, information about how to get your questions answered. So the first thing we would recommend is even those who asked questions on the call today, we take the, go back to your treating healthcare team, of course, and discuss the question with them. I often feel like this program provides each of you a, a bit of a role play in asking a question that you can then take back to your healthcare team. All of your questions were outstanding, and so you can certainly go back and ask your healthcare team those questions. And for anyone who didn't get to ask a question, please go back to your treating healthcare team. In addition to that, um, we are um, partnering with um, ovarian cancer organizations that do have um, call centers that you can contact. So the um, National Ovarian Cancer Coalition and um, the, um, the um, Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance both have call centers that you can contact. And at the end of the program, we're going to be giving you an evaluation. You'll get an evaluation. But the evaluation will also include um, many of our speakers identified um, resources for all of you to utilize and so to get more information. So we will include those resources and specific resources to get your questions answered in terms of specific ovarian cancer groups. I also do recommend the National Cancer Institute. It's a wonderful place to go to for information. They have an 800 number, and they also have a website. Their website is unique in the sense that it has a live chat feature, so you can post your question, and one of the information specialists will go through their entire database and get you the answers you need and really have a bit of a dialogue with you back and forth. So that's really nice for people internationally as well to use that um, so I hope those help you. And for those of you who'd like to pursue services from Cancer Care, you can certainly call us, and we'll have all that information on the evaluations when you get them from us, but you can call us 
at 1-800-813-4673, or you may visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Most importantly, as we conclude today, I don't and we don't want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with ovarian cancer or any type of cancer. We want you to know that you're now part of a lot of resources to access, both from Cancer Care and many other organizations as well. In addition, I just wanted to give you a bit of a heads up on three programs we have coming up that might be of interest to you. One of them is on caregiving for your loved one with cancer, and that's on March 19th, and that might be helpful to caregivers on the call today or for those of you who are your own caregivers or would like to know more about what caregivers do in terms of helping out. We have another program on managing eye and vision changes related to cancer treatments on Monday, April 15th, and that may be of interest to some of you on the call today. Um, And really, um, sometimes there are lots of different vision things that people experience, loss of eyelashes from chemo, um, you know, um, and um, uh, different types of symptoms that you may have related to your eyes. It, It really might be helpful to have this whole group of ophthalmologists and an oncologist presenting on And the last one I want to mention is called The Joys and Challenges of Pets in Your Home When You Have Cancer. I know many of you on the call today probably have a pet at home, and you might want to think about, well, um, how do I manage this? Um, And uh, so that might be an interesting program for you. It's on April 8th. So with all that being said, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.